0: Hey, I'm Pastor Jason. I'm here, one of the pastors at Cross Connection Church, and I am excited to be able to share with you guys this week. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 9, so if you want to turn there, I'm going to pray, and then we are going to get started. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day, Lord. I pray that you be glorified in all that we say and all that we do. pray, Lord, that uh, that this time in your word would be fruitful. Lord, that it would uh, help us to grow closer to you, Lord, and that it would help us to To bring you joy, Lord God, as you, as you have done for us so many times. So, Lord, be glorified in your people, enlighten us to your word, fill us with your Holy Spirit, and help us to glorify you. We pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Like I said, we are going to be in Nehemiah chapter nine, but before we jump into the happens in chapter nine, we need to go to a little bit of background here. So, the the focus of Nehemiah is the rebuilding of the walls and the returning of the people to Jerusalem. Now the temple has been rebuilt. So the work had begun. Um, God moved originally in the heart of the pagan king Cyrus to rebuild the temple. That's in the book of Ezra all the way back in chapter one. So they started and they built the altar. The altar was built Uh, thereabouts in Ezra chapter 1, 2, 3. Chapter 3, we see that they celebrate the first feast after their captivity, after the rebuilding of the temple, they rebuilt the altar. It was the Feast of Tabernacles in Ezra chapter 3. Uh, The Feast of Tabernacles commemorates God leading the people out and providing for his people as they fled from Egypt. So the altar was the first thing built before anything else um, this is significant because the altar is the place where sin is atoned for a place where all could find forgiveness from god now the interesting thing here is we think of these things happening like you know reasonably quick reasonably soon together it was 91 years from the bu- from the building of the altar when the altar was completed until the walls were built here in nehemiah so 91 years Takes place. That's a long time. That's a generation of people. The people that begin began it were not likely the people that saw it finished. So then we get into the book of Nehemiah. We leave Ezra. Get into Nehemiah. Uh, the wall is in ruins. In, in Nehemiah chapter one, we see that the walls in ruins. People come and go. There's no security. This breaks Nehemiah's heart. In chapter two, the king sees this. Artaxerxes sees this, and he sends Nehemiah gives them permission and provision, sends them out to fix the wall. Chapter three, we see the building starts. Chapter four in Nehemiah, we see opposition from enemies. We see those that come in and try to disrupt it. So then in chapter four, we also see what I like to call the sword and trowel brigade. Those who are building the wall and those that are defending. So rather than everybody building, half are building, half are defending. They're in a state in chapter four of constant vigilance, watching for where the next attack's gonna come from and being ready and yet continuing the build. So then we see in chapter 5 we see the financial subjugation of Israelites of Israelites by Israelites. We see those that that were one people were actually taking advantage of others and putting them in basically in like dual slavery not just to the people that were ruling over them currently but also we see them being put in subjugation to their own people and israelites because they couldn't pay their bills so they would take them and their children and their property as surety and this was an injustice and nehemiah says this is not going to happen So we see the financial justice taking place. We see the forgiving of debts. We see the children of Israel coming together as one people to accomplish something. Then in chapter six, we see psychological operations or psyops from the neighboring countries against the workers and against management. We see rumors, we see threats. We see all these things designed to stop the wall. And yet at the same time in chapter six, the wall is finished. The wall around Jerusalem is finished the protection is there when chapter 7 we see that there's a census of the people and we see recording the contributions that the people made and then in chapter 8 which is just prior to chapter 9 because that's how numbers work right chapter 8 we see that they read the law to the people and the people find out how far off they were from what god desired and we see that there's a mourning that takes place among the people. And the Israelites go out amongst them and they're telling the people, do not be sad right now. This is a time, this is a holy day, a holiday. This is the feast of shelters or the feast of tabernacles. This commemorates the goodness of God. This is a time to rejoice. This is a time where we celebrate the fantasticness of God, not looking at the brokenness of his people. So rejoice for the joy of the Lord, it says in Nehemiah chapter eight, The joy of the Lord is your strength. The thing that you're gonna draw strength from is the joy of the Lord. And that brings us to Nehemiah chapter nine. So on the 24th day of this month, the Israelites assembled. They were fasting, they were wearing sackcloth, and they had put dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their ancestors. And while they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God a fourth of the day and spent another fourth of the day in confession and worship of the Lord their God. And then in verse four, it says, Deshua, Bani, a bunch of names I'm not going to pronounce, stood on the raised platform that was built for the Levites and cried out loudly to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, a bunch of other names we're not going to try to pronounce, said, Stand up, blessed be the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. Let's tear apart those verses a little bit here and we're going to look a little deeper. So we see in verse one, on the 24th day of this month, the Israelites assembled, they were fasting, they were wearing sackcloth, and had put dust on their heads. They're preparing themselves internally for what, for what God has for them as they read the word. They put, they're fasting, so they're focusing on God, depriving their flesh, they're sacrificing comfort for their body, for clarity of their mind and spirit. They're wearing sackcloth, which is forcing physical discomfort in order for them to focus. Do you ever notice that we tend to fall into sin when we're comfortable? We tend to be distracted when there's no pressing needs. Sackcloth is a constant, itchy, uncomfortable reminder that they are focusing on something right now and dust putting dust on their heads is a symbol of mourning they're mourning their own brokenness their sin their falling short of god because that's what they see in the word here they're mourning those things and in verse 2 it says those of israelite descent separated themselves from all foreigners god had called them to not intermarry with the surrounding people, to not intermarry with those that were not of the children of Israel, not because it's a racist thing, but because he was protecting them from the customs and spiritual contagion that the surrounding peoples had. So those of Israelite descent withdrew from those external influences. They separated themselves from temptation, from contagion, and they stood and confessed their sins. It's personal repentance. It starts with me. The sin that should grieve us the most is our own. The The issues that cause us the most concern and result in the most action should be our own because those are the only ones that we have control over. But see, they had prepared themselves. They had removed other temptations. They had focused. They'd removed all the other places they could lay blame. And the focus is drawn back to their own sin-sick souls. This results in a cry for help Lord forgive me it's that confession of sin and then also going on the end of the verse there verse 2 and the iniquities of their ancestors it's like a collective repentance Um, like it says in Isaiah I come from an unclean people with unclean lips I see the effects we see the effects of our ancestors on our behaviors We see, like, I'm sure you've had this with your parenting, if you're a parent, where all of a sudden your dad or your mom speaks out of your mouth words that you said, I would never say that to my kids, and you're like, whoa, it just came out of my mouth. I see the way that I was raised and how I raise my kids. I see the way that my parents act and how I act sometimes. I see the effects of choices that grandparents have made and so on and so forth. Um, Recently, this is not in my notes, so if it goes all wonky, you know what, it is what it is. Recently, um, I actually we did the, the Ancestry.com you know, where you, you spit in the vial and you send it off and they tell you who you are based on your spit, which is pretty amazing. But you see the effects of choices that, I saw the effects of choices that were made by people, my ancestors, in the 1700s in some cases, in the 1600s, another, in the 1800s, where they physically moved from one place to another and that changed who I became. I see the fact that they left Holland and moved to the U.S., and that changed who I would be. It changed the language that I would speak. It changed the choices that were available to me because of how they moved, because of what they did. So we see that the past, the decisions of the past, have effects on who we are, and the sins of the past come back and have echoes in our own lives. We're not praying for the dead. We're not praying that people that are past would repent, but we're acknowledging that those who went before us were sinful people who needed forgiveness, not ancestor worship and not this idea that life was better before it was a bunch of us sinners like us now. No, we know that those in the past also had iniquities. Our ancestors were broken people who needed a savior from their sin as well. And maybe it was our ancestors that brought us closer to Christ through the decisions they made. Maybe they joined a church. Maybe they left a one tradition and joined to another. Maybe they're the ones that got, we don't know. But it's when we know more about where we came from, we can get a little better idea of where we might be going. So we can't go back to the life was better before we were sinners thing. But we can acknowledge that those who came before us, they were sinful as well. And in verse 3, it goes on, it says, while they stood in their places, they read from the book of the law. Those are the Levites that are there and they're reading from the book of the law. They're reminding the people of the standard, of the commandments, of the goodness of God. If we don't know what we're supposed to do, we're not going to do it. It's like trying to play a game where you don't know the rules. And I'm sure we've all had that experience where you sit down to try to play, play a brand new game, whether it's a card game or a board game or a video game, and you just don't understand what's going on because you don't know the rules. Well, the same thing happens to us. The same thing happens to the people of Israel. They didn't know the rules. And when the rule is read, when the law is read, when they read from the word, oh, we understand more about what we're supposed to do. So they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day. A quarter of the day they read from the book of the law. See, they have structured the time. We're going to do a quarter here, a quarter here. They've structured these things. And structured time prevents slacking off or cheating. Because a lot of times I have... Set goals and not structured a way to get there. And a goal without a plan is just a wish and a dream. you got to set these structures if these things are going to make sense. So they read from the book of the law for a quarter of the day. They're focused. They're regimented. If you don't make time for it, guess what? It's not going to get done. So they set time. We are going to read from the book of the law for a quarter of the day. And they spent another fourth of the day In the end of verse three there Another fourth of the day in confession and worship of the Lord their God. See, confession and worship are linked. And as we spend time in the word, we see the goodness of God and we see the depravity of man. We see that God is good and that we are not. So it results in worship and then it results in confession. God, I worship you because you are so awesome. You're so loving. You're so wonderful. You're so powerful And yet at the same time I see where I'm not and Lord forgive me for I am falling short continually. We see that confession and worship are linked and our brokenness reveals God's perfection and His grace leads us to love and it leads us to worship. We see God's perfection because we see our poor reflection of it. We see how broken we are. Point number one in your outlines if you're planning on taking notes Point one, planning and preparing, let me start that over again. Point one, planning and preparing for time with God in his word will provide proper perspective and prevent penalties. I gave you one, two, three, four, five, six, seven P words to help try to remember. Planning and preparing for time with God in his word will provide proper perspective and prevent penalties. When we plan and we prepare ourselves as we get into the word it's going to provide perspective for us it's going to give us the uh, the things that we need to focus on it's going to help us to understand and guide and direct our lives and it's going to prevent us from doing dumb things when god says you know what gossip is wrong and we start to go oh did you, you know what oh, you get that reminder from the Spirit. Remember, we're not, oh, not going to gossip. I'm going to pull back from that. I'm going to avoid it. I'm going to avoid the penalty. So we see that here, planning and preparing for time with God will provide proper perspective and prevent penalties. Now, as we go forward in this passage, we're going to see a prayer and praise walk throughout the history of the children of Israel. And notice, they have an unflinching look at the betrayal and the failures as they are recounted. They don't shy away from historical blemishes. We have a tendency to celebrate successes and try to hide failures. This is like a social media like gold standard. You celebrate the good things and you don't show the bad things unless maybe it'll get you some more clicks and some more notice. But most of the time all you see is a highlight reel and you don't see the failures. Israel here, the Israelites do not give them, the Levites do not give them that option. They're going to go through and they're going to explain it. So all those names, they're standing on this raised platform in verse four that was built for the Levites and they cried loudly to the Lord, their God. So this platform was built not because the Levites are better, but because it's hard to talk to a lot of people if you're all at the same height. So it's not an elevation of position. It's an elevation of communication as it were. So the Levites stand up and they say, "Stand up, people! Blessed be the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted among all blessing and praise." And then they go through creation in verse six. You, O Lord God, you are the only God. You created the heavens, the highest heavens with all their stars, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and all of the stars of heaven worship you. And then they move in verse seven to the calling of the nation of Israel and the covenant. They say, you, the Lord are the God who chose Abram. You brought him out of the earth, the Chaldeans. You charged him. I'm sorry. You changed his name to Abraham. You found his heart faithful in your sight and you made a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanites, the Hezites, the Ammonites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Gigashites. I'm sure I'm murdering some of these names. You give it To his descendants, you have fulfilled your promise for you are righteous. They are recounting the righteousness of God as he made a covenant with his people. Now remember, they just have celebrated Back in Nehemiah chapter 9, they have just celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles, the celebration of how God has led them out of captivity in Egypt and sustained them in the desert. And they go through that right now. In verse 9, it says, You saw the oppression of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and his officials, all the people of his land, for you knew how arrogantly they treated our ancestors. You made a name for yourself that endures to this day. You divided the sea before them. They crossed through on dry ground. Ground. You hurled their pursuers into the depth like a stone in the raging water. You led them with a pillar of cloud by day and with a pillar of fire by night to illuminate the way that sh- they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and you spoke to them from heaven. You gave them impartial ordinances, reliable instructions, and good statutes and commands. Look at that. I love that part of that verse 13. You gave them impartial ordinances, reliable instructions, and good statutes and commands. How we need that. Impartial ordinances, reliable instructions, good statutes and commands. And verse 14, it says, you revealed your holy Sabbath to them. You gave them commands, statutes and instructions through your servant Moses, you provided bread from heaven for their hunger. You brought them water from the rock for their thirst. You told them to go in and possess the land that you had sworn to give them. And if you're familiar with the, Hisra- the history of Israel, you know what's going to happen next. So now we see the reminder of their ancestors of their betrayal of that same covenant that they were just celebrating. But our ancestors acted arrogantly. They became stiff-necked and did not listen to your commands. They refused to listen and did not remember your wonders that you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. They wouldn't listen. They refused to bend. It didn't matter that God had provided guidance, protection, and provisions. All of that was forgotten in the desert. Because if you're familiar with the story, you'll remember that Abraham went up on the mountain. I'm sorry, Moses went up on the mountain to commune with God, to get the law, to get the Ten Commandments, to get the tablets. But he was up there for a little bit of time. And it didn't take long, and they, the children of Israel had forgotten all about it. The end result is they selected themselves a new leader who would do what they wanted, which, is, which was to return to slavery in Egypt. See, safe, safe slavery was more attractive than faith that calls them out past what they could see. And the same thing is true for us. We are often feel safer when we are not called out to step out. But God continually calls us to step past what we understand. He calls us to have faith. So we see here, the only reason that they followed Moses out of Egypt was the alternate option, was slavery and death. But then when Moses isn't there, isn't that reminder to the people that God is watching us, God is with us, they decide, We are going to make our own God, we're going to make our own leader, and we are going to get what we want by building our own God. And we'll see how effective that is. So their chosen leader led them in the way that they wanted and led them straight into idolatry. It continues on in verse 17, but you are a forgiving God, gracious gracious, and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and you did not abandon them. Even after they had cast an image of a calf for themselves and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. And they had committed terrible blasphemies. God still led and provided for them, even though they built their own God and selected their own leader with the express purpose of going the opposite direction of what God wanted from them. Verse 19 says, you did not abandon them in the wilderness because of your great compassion. During the day, the pillar of cloud never turned away from them, guiding them on their journey. And during the night, the pillar of fire illuminated illuminated the way that they should go. You sent your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths and you gave them water for their thirst. You provided for them in the wilderness 40 years and they lacked nothing. Notice, even though they are rebellious people, even though they are people that continually turn away from God, And we say they, but we know that we're not any different. He still provided for them. He still guided them, still directed them, still met their needs. They lacked nothing. Verse 21 says, their clothes did not wear out. Their feet did not swell. You gave them the kingdom and peoples that you established boundaries for them. They took possession of the land of the king of King Sihon of Heshbon and the land of King Og of Bashan. They were blessed in many ways, both in obvious ways and obscure ways. So he provided for them. They had food, they had drink, they had all these things. But notice in the middle of verse 21, there at the end of verse 21, their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. My wife and I were just having a conversation the other day and we were talking about how different it is now compared to when we were a little bit younger with respect to clothes and brands and things like that. We were recounting a certain brand that makes clothing and it doesn't seem to last i'm not going to impugn them on here but there's a certain brand that used to seem like it lasted a long time and now it just seems to wear out and i was laughing with my wife talking about how remember i used to have like shirts from eddie bauer at the mall i'd buy a shirt there and that shirt would last like a decade like i would wear that same shirt for 10 years which tells you about how much fashion sense i have but anyway I would wear that shirt for like a decade and it wouldn't wear out. And I gave credit to Eddie Bauer when perhaps, not perhaps, (laughs) when for sure, the credit should have gone to God because at that same time, money was very tight. And God provided clothes that did not wear out, shoes that fit because the feet did not swell. Sometimes the blessing of God is in the needs that we don't have instead of meeting needs that we know we have. Sometimes God provides for us by meeting, by preventing us from needing things, like giving us shirts from Eddie Bauer that last a decade. Sometimes it's obvious, meeting the needs like providing the food, providing the water, providing the guidance and direction. Sometimes it's by, we don't even, by needs that never arise. So they're blessed in many ways, both obvious ways and obscure ways. In verse 23, it goes on, it says, You multiplied their descendants like the stars of the sky. You brought them to the land You told their that you told their ancestors to go in and possess. So their descendants went in and possessed the land. You subdued the Canaanites who inhabited the land before them and handed their kings and the surrounding peoples over to them to do as they pleased with them. They captured fortified cities and fertile lands. They took possession of well-supplied houses, cisterns cut of rock vineyards, olive groves, fruit trees in abundance. They ate and were filled, became prosperous and delighted in your great goodness. That's the end of verse 25 there. They ate and they were filled. They became prosperous and they delighted in the great goodness of God. God gave them the land. They're not hungry. They have their needs met. They have wealth, in fact. They're delighting themselves in the goodness of God. They're being blessed beyond measure, protected in love. And guess what, hap- guess what happens next? The good old days turn into a great turning away. And how often is it that we manage to screw up when things are going well? Verse 26 says, they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They flung your law behind their backs. And killed your prophets who warned them in order to turn them back to you they committed terrible blasphemies they were fat they were happy they were enjoying life and then they were disobedient and rebelled against god i love the word picture they flung the law behind their backs they killed the prophets who warned them in order to turn them back to god the prophets came and the people killed them, and they committed terrible blasphemies. Fat and happy and bored, the people forgot their need for God. Now remember, Satan found Eve in the garden where there was no sin, no death, no strife. That's where sin first entered. Point two, if you're taking notes, the temptation to turn from God is effective when most of our needs are met. The temptation to turn from God is effective when most of our needs are met. When things are happy, when things are good, when life is, seems to be sailing along, it's easy to forget God when we don't have an immediate need that only He can provide. We instead build our own golden calves and turn to them. Golden calves of distraction. Like I can distract myself with TV or movies or video games or hobbies. or all this. I can distract from there. Dissipation. I can, I can f- forget God and, and instead look at food, or drink, or drugs, or all those kinds of things. Or I can rely on my Discover card. Distraction, dissipation, and Discover card. They end up operating as our functional saviors because it's easy and convenient to worship them over Jesus. It's easy when something comes up and we have the money to pay for it, or we have the credit to cover it. Oh, oh, that's a bummer. Slap the Discover on that and we'll take for it and two percent cash back hey or one percent whatever the percent is doesn't really matter but i'm going to get cash back on it which makes it even better and i don't have to worry about asking god about it because i have my functional savior in my wallet or i have my functional savior in a bottle or i have my functional savior in the garage and i can polish it with a diaper and drive it around and it'd be like ferris bueller's day off and it's like who do you love you love a car all these things operate as golden calves in our lives so that we don't have to worship jesus we don't have to turn to him because we have these other things to meet the needs so like the children of israel were fat and happy and they turn from god they embrace sin and god allows them to eat the cake that they made look at verse 27 so you handed them over to their enemies who oppressed them in their time of distress they cried out to you and you heard from heaven in your abundant compassion you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the powers of their enemies said Yeah, they went to their enemies. You handed them over to their enemies. And then they, well, you don't like this. This is terrible. We need you, Lord. We're in circumstances where we need you. And they cry out and God delivers them. And then in verse 28, but as soon as they had relief, they again did what was evil in your sight. So you abandoned them to the power of their enemies who dominated them. When they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven and rescued them many times in your compassion. And we see in verse 29, you warned them to turn back to your law, but they acted arrogantly and would not obey your commands. They sinned against your ordinances, which a person will live by if he does them. They stubbornly resisted, stiffened their necks and would not obey. You were patient with them for many years, and your spirit warned them through your prophets, but they would not listen. Therefore, you handed them over to the surrounding peoples. They're summing up what happened over and over and over. You warned them they acted arrogantly, they would not obey your commands, they stubbornly resisted, and you were patient with them. So we see here through these examples that the best thing that God could do for the well-being of the children of Israel was to, be, to allow them to be subjugated by the people around them. The thing that draw that drew them back to God, the thing that would get them to focus back to where they should have been was being subjugated by the people around them. And yet, verse 31, however, in your abundant compassion, you did not destroy them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and compassionate God. Notice their captivity was not abandonment. It was not destruction. It was a tool to bring them to repentance. It was a tool to bring them back to a right relationship with God. Turn from your sin and come back to me. But see, God understands that very often his people are not going to turn back to him just because they feel like it. There needs to be some circumstances that point out to them that guess what? Your functional saviors are not enough. Your Discover card is not enough. Your hobbies are not going to be distracting enough. You're going to run into financial needs that your Discover can't meet and you're going to run into things that you cannot dull with alcohol or drugs or food or whatever. You're going to get to that place where you find that you need God. So the captivity was not an abandonment. It was not a destruction. It was a tool to bring them back to repentance. Well, what if the circumstances that we face that seem so horrible and so overwhelming are not God abandoning us or God destroying us, but instead circumstances designed by God to bring us to repentance? There's a thought. Maybe the things that we're going through, that I go through, that you're going through, maybe it's something you're going through right now. Maybe the whole point of that is God's going, come to me. I will give you rest. I can, there's no circumstance that we face that he can't deal with. Go to him. At this point, though, in Nehemiah chapter 9, we see in verse 32, the focus shifts. They're no longer looking at their terrible ancestors that came before, you know, those degenerates, because sometimes we can look at the people in the past or look at the children of Israel and go, oh my goodness, these people, they continually screw up. They screw up all the time. I would never screw up like that. And then you hear echoes of, I will never betray you from Simon Peter until the rooster crows. And all of a sudden you're faced with the fact that I said that and then I screwed up. See the focus shifts from their ancestors to themselves. So verse 32 says, so now our God, the great and mighty and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant. Do not view lightly all the hardships that afflicted us, God. Our kings and our leaders, our priests and our prophets, our ancestors and all your people from the days of the Assyrian kings until today, you are righteous concerning all that has happened to us because you have acted faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Verse 33 again, you are righteous, they said, concerning all that's happened to us because you have acted faithfully while we have acted wickedly. Point three in your outline. When we are punished or fall into the consequences of our sin, it is righteous and faithful for God to allow us to marinate in the consequences of our transgressions. When we're punished or fall into the consequences of our sin, it is righteous and faithful for God to allow us to marinate in the consequences of our transgression. And what are those consequences look at verse 34 our kings leaders priests and ancestors did not obey your law or listen to your commands and warnings you gave them for while they were in their kingdom with your abundant goodness that you gave them and in the spacious and fertile land you set before them they would not serve you or turn from their wicked ways if we ignore the laws the commands and the warnings in the bible we are we will find ourselves in captivity to sin So it says, the kings, the leaders, the priests, the ancestors did not obey the law, did not listen to the commandments or the warnings that you gave. If we ignore the laws, the commandments and the warnings that we see in the Bible, we're gonna find ourselves in the same kind of captivity. Now the Assyrians may not show up at your door and drag you off, but you will find yourself captive to sin. And the weight and the misery is gonna be the same. So verse 36, they say, here we are today, slaves in the land that you gave our ancestors so that they could enjoy its fruit and its goodness. Here we are, slaves in it. Here we are today, you and I, we're in a country, a state, a county, a city, a neighborhood, a house, a family, a marriage. Here we are in the land that God has given to us, and yet very often, we live as slaves. Look at verse 34 and 35 again. Let's substitute our own names and see how it fits and feels. Verse 34, I, Jason, did not obey the law or listen to your commands and warnings that you gave to me. When Jason was in his kingdom with your abundant goodness that you gave me and in the spacious land that you sat before me, I would not serve you or turn from my wicked ways. Do that again with your own name and see how it hurts because it fits so well. Here I am today, a slave in the land that he's given to me. a slave to sin that is just present in all of us. What are the effects that we see? Verse 37, it says, It's abundant harvest goes to the kings that you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and our livestock as they please. We are in great distress. The effects, everything that seems to be good gets taken away and goes to somebody else somebody that has been set over us, whether that's taxes, whether that's the good things that we seek to enjoy being taken away from us, whether it's our health, they rule over our bodies, our livestock, they do as they please, and we find ourselves in great distress. See, our natural tendency when we're faced with things like this is to look outward, we wanna blame society. We wanna blame government. We wanna blame, blame millennials. We wanna blame boomers. We wanna blame this thing. We wanna blame that thing. We wanna blame all these other things. We wanna to go to war with all of these other targets to obscure the real issue. We wanna obscure it with indignation or anger or whatever. We wanna blame a spouse or a governor or a president or a boss or whatever else it could possibly be as we dance around our chosen calf and avoid the one thing that can make a positive change for us. Point four in your outline. If we continue to ignore our past failures and refuse to learn from them, we will only repeat them over and over again. If we continue to ignore our past failures and refuse to learn from them, we're only gonna repeat them over and over again. But, but some Christians will say, my past is forgiven. If God has forgotten it, then why should I remember it? Yes, Christian, you are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. If you have laid them at the feet of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Past, present, future, those things are forgiven far as East is from the West. But if you fall into the same patch of quicksand four times in a row, you're forgiven, but you're stupid. If you walk into the same quicksand, it doesn't matter how forgiven you are, you're still stuck in the quicksand. There's still consequences. And when you're rescued from that and you turn around and you run right back in the same patch of quicksand, that's dumb. Don't do that. We don't, un- we don't live under the guilt, but we can learn from the past. But see, only if we remember it. When we finally tire out and we finally get done of a- running into the same quicksand, we come to our sentence our senses, sorry, our sentence, we come to our senses, we see the only true response that the situation demands is repentance. And the crazy thing is that life is designed to lead us to God, not through our good behavior like some religions teach. If you're good enough, then God's gonna be like, hey, high five, come with me. Our good behavior, it will help us, it'll make our lives easier, but that's not what saves us. It's the repentance that's found at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. That's where salvation is found. And the thing that's clear from the examples in this chapter and in our own lives is that we will continue to screw up. Romans chapter seven, starting in verse 21 says, Paul speaking, I find then a law that evil is present with me. The one who wills to do good, for I delight in the law of God according to my inward man. I delight in it, he says, but I see another law in my members or in my flesh, warring against the law of my mind and bringing in me bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members or in my flesh. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who's going to deliver me from the fact that I want to glorify God with all that I am, and yet I find that I continually fail. And in verse 25, he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with this mind, I myself served the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. Our flesh is present with us always. Its desires for sin is ever present. And indeed, it's often, if we're honest, victorious in the short term. Paul says in verse 15, in that same chapter, for what I'm doing, I don't understand. For what I will to do, or what I want to do, that I don't practice. But what, it, what I hate, that is what I do. And when we see that, when we realize that I don't want to live this way, I don't want to do these things, I want to glorify God, the way forward is through repentance. The best thing that we can learn from the example of the children of Israel is to repent quickly and continually. If we continue to look at the goodness of God, it highlights our frailness. Uh, If you want a sneak peek on how this works, read Nehemiah chapter 13 when we get done here. It'll be eye-opening. But remember though, our frailty and failure, it leads us to Jesus. And that's where joy is. In the act of repentance, joy because we have a savior, joy because he is faithful and merciful, joy because his love is not dependent on my performance, but it's directed by his nature. All of this serves to guide and direct us to God, not out of our shame, but because he loves us. He knows us and he loves us anyway. So even though we can tend to feel ashamed or embarrassed by our sin, we need to remember that it has been overcome by the love of a God who is faithful, merciful and loves us with an everlasting love not because we deserve it but because it is who he is a love that is not hindered by our brokenness but a love that makes us whole through the sacrifice of jesus christ let's pray heavenly father we know Our brokenness. We know our failures. We know how often we fall so short of what you have for us. And yet you love us anyway. Thank you, Father. Thank you for loving me, for forgiving me, for continually setting my feet on solid ground and guiding and directing me closer to you. Lord, I pray for all those who see this, all those who watch this, all those who hear this. Lord, I pray. That their hearts would be directed towards you lord those that are maybe broken and ashamed of themselves that they would find your love love that heals our brokenness love that covers our shame love that brings us to a right relationship with you and father for those who are maybe in that that place of being stiff-necked and arrogant lord i pray that you would bring to them the circumstances, that captivity, that forces them to cry out to you. Because Lord, just like we saw with the children of Israel, the best thing that God could do for them was to bring them into captivity that they would reach out to God. So Father God, guide us and direct us. Thank you for your love, thank you for your forgiveness, thank you for the blessings that you've continually poured out to us, Lord. Help us to not turn away, but Lord, when we do, help us to repent quickly. Lord, help us to repent and get our feet right and moving in the right direction. Lord Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, so we're going to finish the rest of this chapter next week. It's only one verse, but we'll finish it next week. So hope to see you then. God bless you guys. Bye-bye.